0: Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. This is Season 4 and Episode 13. Today I'm honored to have a very multifaceted author, writer, uh, podcaster, hotel owner, Jamie Schler, who has written, among other things, the book Orange Appeal, Savory and Sweet, and also the uh, book that's available online on Apple Books called isolation baking which is available to get there um she's got a food blog called life's a feast and uh she's a wonderful writer and i really love her work um i've read her work and been following her for quite some time Uh, so i was very honored to be able to have her as a guest on the podcast uh she also has a brand new um podcast called stir crazy which is quite nice it's on amazon um And iTunes, as among other things. I listen to it on Spotify, so I'm sure you should be able to find it on any platform. So without further ado, we're going to go to talk to our guest, Jamie Schler. And here we go. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I am very honored to have on my program, Jamie Schler from Life's a Feast. Jamie, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored and I'm really excited to be here.
0: Now, I know that we had put this in for later, but you have your own podcast coming up yourself, and I'm kind of eager to talk to you about this and listen to it myself. Tell us about your brand new um, podcast called Stir Crazy.
1: Well, it's something that actually um, we can tell by the name Stir Crazy. It came out of um, confinement, Uh, just everybody spending so much time on on social media and spending more time listening to podcasts because we had the time. And um, it, it actually came up kind of strangely, and it came up because of Twitter. A friend of mine who was starting a new podcast uh, decided to do a little promo f- on Twitter. And by just putting up a tweet saying, if you could start a podcast today, what would your concept be? And I thought, what the heck, I answered him. And I said, my concept would be a food podcast, but..." My guests would not be food professionals; they would be just, you know, people from all different um, all different professions. None of them food, and we would talk food um, because I think that, especially getting especially with people, uh, the contact I've had with a lot of people I've met, been meeting and following on social media during confinement, I've been surprised at how many people that you had had no, couldn't imagine that they stayed home and baked cakes or cooked were actually really passionate cooks and bakers and and I know from experience that people who are not in the food profession you know they're not food artisans or chefs or cookbook authors or food writers of which I know gazillion they have a lot of fascinating food related stories excuse me and a, a a great insight that's different than food professionals have on food, food and family, food and culture. So I thought it would be fun to get some of them on a podcast and talk about food.
0: I like that. I love that. And I I love a lot of food podcasts. I never get tired of listening to them. I think my wife's even said, how many podcasts do you listen to on food? I'm like, how many do you got? You know, like, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. This is kind of seems to be a wonderful heyday, almost kind of like yeah. a renaissance of food writers getting to talk together. I really like this.
1: Yeah. So I think it's been fun doing it with non-food professionals because I don't know how many podcasts exist where the guests are not in any way, shape or form food professionals. So it's been it's been fun. It's been, I, we've taped four so far. And I'm prepping for my next few guests and it's, um, it's fun. It's kind of scary, but it's fun.
0: <laughs> now, Jamie, for our guests who are not familiar with your work, can uh, you tell our guests a little bit about yourself?
1: Very briefly, I am an American. I grew up in Florida, uh, went to school in Philadelphia, worked a little bit in New York and then left for Europe in 1985, actually and um, settled here in 87. And I've lived in France with little side seven years in Italy since 1987. And in 20, I've done a few different professions. I was a professional milliner. I was in culinary uh, tourism. And my husband and I bought a hotel in Chinon, Hotel Diderot, Mm-hmm. in Chinon which is in the center of France and we moved in and took over in January 2015 now and you've... I'm also gosh yes I'm also a food uh, freelance food writer and cookbook author <laughs> can't right. forget that
0: no no I you've been in France for quite a while what's that been like for you um I mean you probably feel like a citizen of France now I mean how does how does that like like for you
1: I don't feel French um but I don't I mean, I go back to the states, and I feel foreign there. I feel foreign here, which is kind of um, there's a lot of advantages to that. But um, it's it's home to me here. I feel kind of like I said, I feel kind of foreign in the United States now. I'm much more used to European uh, lifestyle and uh, and culture, even though we've lived in a couple of different cultures within Europe. But uh, yeah, so this is and it won't be our last. I mean, we'll some. we're talking about our next move um, in a few years when we re- can, can retire, <laughs> sort of retire. And if we want to stay in France or go to another country. So oh. yeah, we're free and mobile. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, life is, we have nothing that tethers us to any place. So we can pick up and move whenever we want, which is nice.
0: Yeah, I like that. Now you worked as a translator in Paris as a, at a professional cooking school as one of your first jobs there. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about that and how wonderful that must have been for you?
1: Well, I actually started working for uh, a gentleman called Robert Noah, who had created Paris en Cuisine, which was probably one of the very first culinary tourism organizations. I mean, he was probably the, one of the first people to do culinary, high-end culinary tourism, and So I worked with him doing the as guide and interpreter. So we would take groups of one, two, three, maximum six people to Michelin starred restaurants, into the kitchens, and have private cooking demonstrations. I would take them to, you know, the best wine cellar in Paris for wine tastings or champagne tastings. I would take them to visit the a lot of the artisan producers in Paris, and. he also had created four years earlier the Anglophone section at uh, the big French professional cooking school in Paris, Grégoire Ferrandi, which is the American program is still running. Um, I mean, I started working for him in, yeah, he started in the mid-80s and it still it still exists. So it's for Anglophones who want to come and do, um, uh, acquire the French cooking diploma, the CAP. And so when I s- started working for him, he sent me there to take over. He was doing the interpreting for the, for the Anglophone group. And mostly I did six hours of pastry for their, for their pastry class every Monday for four years. And then I did all the extra classes, the sausage making, the fish and seafood the bakery, things like that. And it was, first of all, it was, I mean, it was a lot of fun. it was also fascinating getting to see um, not only the cooking school, but in the kitchens of Michelin-starred restaurants and how they worked and get to meet the chefs. But what was also, what really made me the food writer I am today, many years later, is that I had to know absolutely everything I could possibly know about French cooking, French cooking from cooking techniques to uh, dishes, to um, the chefs and the restaurants, everything that was going on in French cooking uh, then contemporarily, but also the history of French food. And I'm just absolutely everything because I had to be able to ask questions and answer questions and translate. So. Uh, that's when I just became fascinated with the history of French cooking. Not only the history of French cooking, but the the social history and the social evolution of dishes and food and cuisine and um, literary, you know, literary mentions of food and stuff. So it was, it was really intense and it was really fascinating.
0: Now, um, did you always want to go to France? Was that something you'd always like wanted? Was that always a goal for you? Or was it just a happy accident that got you to France?
1: No, it was neither one nor the other. I um was living in New York. I was very, I mean, it was kind of leaving the States more than it was going anywhere else. I was very uh, unhappy in my, in the job that I had and kind of the choices I made for, for, for my career and politics, and the whole social—you know—everything going on in the states during the during the '80s. And yeah. one day, one day, I said, "That's it, I'm leaving." And I literally dumped all of my belongings on the sidewalk in front of my apartment building, except for two suitcases and a few things that I gave to my brother to hold on to me for, and um, quit my job and broke my lease and. So, well, I guess I'm going to France because I studied French in high school, so that's it. And so I went and, but for the next couple of years, I was back and forth, so I would run out of money. I'd be able to afford a one-way ticket back to the States. I'd go back to the States. I would tempt for a couple of months to earn the money to go back to Paris, and I was back and forth. And then in 1987, I met uh, someone who I married and became a resident.
0: Nice. Now, um, I think a lot of Americans have misconceptions about France and uh, French food. What are some of the things that you discovered when you first moved there? And did you have any misconceptions yourself when you moved there? And what did you learn about France as you came to live there and become somebody who lived there long long term?
1: Oh, that's that's complicated. Let me think. I, I don't even know if I had any misconceptions. I think because I came to France, I came so quickly and precipitously that I didn't even think twice. But I remember when I first arrived in Paris, I was standing on a street corner with a map. And a French woman came up to me and said, do you need help? And I said, I'm lost. And she actually walked me to where I needed to go. So any precon, you know, I mean, back then people were, you know, the French are rude, the French are whatever. Um, I mean, I had people say, did the French have, have washing machines? <laughs> so there were a lot of crazy misconceptions, but I think it was all kind of broken, you know, I mean. I mean, I saw from the beginning that it was just, you know, another place like any other place that I'd ever been, probably. Yeah. Um, what's more interesting is the misconceptions I had and what I think a lot of Americans have about French food was that I always thought maybe it's different now because of social media and chefs, more chefs are traveling around the world and, and working in different places. So um But I think as far as French food goes, I think I had the misconception and a lot of people have the misconception that it's fancy, that it's not really accessible, that it's expensive, that it's complicated to make. And what I realized over the years, especially because i married into a very, very working class family. And when I saw the food that they were preparing and then the people that we got to be friends, that, you know, that I was friends with the food they prepared, I realized that it wasn't. And through my studies, what I realized was is that French cuisine, and I don't know if it's one of the few French, one of the few cuisines that developed this way, but from the beginning of time, um, French cuisine developed in two parallel paths, one for royal aristocratic noble kitchens and one for peasants. And it very, very, very rarely crossed over. Um, And so what you see today is, and all that noble aristocratic French royal cooking became restaurant cooking because all the chefs after the French revolution opened up restaurants um, and it's still pretty much that way today. So you get, you know, this kind of now elaborate, more elaborated, but this peasant cooking in people's homes and in the restaurants and in pastry shops and in, you know, fancy food shops, you'll get the other kind of cooking with the sauces and the spices and the, you know, all the fancy cuts of meat and whatever. So this was... Um, Kind of fascinating for me it still is
0: i want to ask you um i looked at your bio and i saw that you lived in the italian city of milan for a while which is mm. you know everybody knows is the fashion district of the world what was that like to live there
1: well that is where i um trained to be a milliner nice <laughs> because we moved there with my husband's job um and you know hesitating should we do it should we not and I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> we want to go and try and live in Italy for a while. And when I got there, I had just worked you know, for four years as a, this culinary interpreter in, in culinary tourism. And I couldn't do that in Italy. So I decided to train as a and, um, But I loved Milan. I loved Milan. I loved eating in Italy. I loved cooking in Italy. I loved living in Italy. Um, I got along with Italians probably better than I get along with French. They, I, I understood them, I understand them better. Um, but cooking there was just, I mean, you go to the markets and everything is local, everything is seasonal. So one day you'll walk into the market and you'll see piles and piles of every variety of tomato you can possibly imagine. And then one day you walk in and they're gone. <laughs> same with, same with, um, Uh, What do you call them in now? I can only think of it in Italian. Um, Um, Artichokes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you go to the market one day and all of a sudden there's, you know, like five varieties of artichokes and mountains of them and you cook them and you cook them and you cook them and then one day you go back and they're gone because it's no longer the season. So it was, um, it was great. It was just.
0: How did you how did you come to cooking? Did you always like cooking? Like since you were young or did you just get, did you start cooking when you were older, like an adult? Like how did that come to you?
1: I always liked eating and I know that nobody ever says that. They always say, well, my mom was a great cook and my mom was a bad cook or I yeah. always great i loved eating and i lived to eat my mother when i was very young i I know she told me that when i was very small she brought me kept bringing me to the doctor because it was a problem because all i wanted to do was eat um and i was so i was fascinated with you know flavors and textures and what if you put this with this and how will it taste and but my mother hated to cook she was not a good cook she hated to cook so from very young we were, we had to prepare our own breakfasts and our own lunches. And then little by little, as we got older, we would also be responsible for our own dinners once a week and then twice a week and three times a week. So um, us kids kind of banded together and, and, but we didn't cook. I personally didn't cook to, oh, let me see what I can cook. It was more like, I, what do I want to eat? Um, but on the other hand, my dad was a baker. My dad was an incredibly passionate baker and I just that really influenced me because I just could stand there and watch him bake forever I never baked with him he never asked me to bake with him Um, but I just watched and it really and then I didn't start cooking or baking until I was really out of college and I was on my own And then for a long time, I was too poor to do anything more than basic stuff. But um, when I worked at New York, I worked for a couple of art dealers. And one of them wrote a small cookbook with a friend of hers. And she had me develop and test some recipes for it. That was really the first chance I had to do that. And I started to understand how that worked.
0: That must have been really fun.
1: Yeah, yeah and then i just basically didn't start cooking a lot i also lived lived down upstairs for my brother in brooklyn for a while before i moved to the states and he's a fantastic cook a really 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 fantastic cook and i learned a lot from him and um, and baking too he did both and then i married a man who was cook, who cooks who cooked for his family when he was in grade school i mean his parents they lived, they owned a corner shop and they had the apartment upstairs and his mother would say, okay, do this. And they would do it. And so she had the kids cook when she couldn't. And little by little, my husband ended up being, he had three sisters and none of them were interested in doing it. So he took over doing it. And then he just said, well, I'm going to get a cookbook and just start doing stuff. My parents don't usually do so. I've learned to cook, for, I'm a baker, cooking, my husband does a cooking, and and I what I didn't learn from my brother, I learned from my husband, so I'm much more comfortable baking than I am cooking.
0: Now, in 2008, you began your food blog, Life's a Feast. Can you tell us how you were inspired to do this and what it has been like for you since you started it?
1: Well, that's another kind of off-kilter kind of thing, because I was working as a milliner and I had created a hat label with someone I met in Nantes and it lasted for two years and then I couldn't work with her anymore so I stopped hat making and my kind of my sons needed a presence at home at that time they were kind of wild high school kids and so I stayed home and so I started to cook and bake all the time, more and more and more and more, because <laughs> that's what I love to do when I was home all the time. And after about a year of that, my husband and my older son came to me and said, you're starting a food blog because we're sick of hearing you talk about food all the time. And you need you need an outlet to channel all of that obsession. So they created the food blog for me. I didn't really know much about food blogs at all. And um and so I said, okay. And so I did. And the first few blog posts, uh, I can't remember if I put up recipes or not, but I, to- I basically told the story of this is why I am you know, writing this blog. And, right. um, and that's when I realized that I liked talking, <laughs> but I liked writing about food m- even more than I liked making it. And I love telling the stories around the food, and I have to say that um, I have we raised multicultural sons. So my sons are you know I'm American, I'm Jewish. Their fathers French and Catholic. They grew. They spent seven years um, in Italy, raised as a, you know in Italian, immersed in the Italian culture. Um, and also my husband had lived and worked for a while in Morocco before I met him. And he learned to cook when he was there. So my sons have all of these different cultures. And because my husband is a great cook and I'm a cook and baker, we've always used food to, you know, whenever we've cooked and baked for them, it's been very, um, a lot of traditional stuff. We do a lot of research. And we do a lot of traditional things from each of these different cultures. And we used it to kind of teach our sons about their different heritages, their different cultures that make up who they are. And we use them as, you know, kind of a vehicle to tell stories to them about their Italian life or, you know, Jewish customs or Catholic holidays or whatever. And so this was a great resource for me for my food blog. And later for my food writing as well.
0: Now I want to, you know, kind of mention your blog to the listeners, because if they've not read it, it's not, I don't want to diminish it and make them think it's just like recipes. There's a lot of you in there. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of your life in there and there's a lot of travel and like cultural stuff in there from where you live. Um, was that your intent when you started it or that just develop organically?
1: Well there's two things because my original blog that I started in two thousand and eight is no longer public right I closed it off to the public in 2015 when we bought we moved into the hotel and I recreated it um, in order to be able to tell stories about the hotel and then with all of my work in the hotel, I kind of kind of fizzled out there's not i I haven't posted for a while on it and um I didn't, I wasn't posting as much as on my old blog. My old blog, I posted pretty regularly, but um, so already that's a little bit of a change, but I think the the only thing that really changed over time is, is that I focused a lot on the writing and you know, at some point, I understood that I could actually control my writing. I learned, I taught myself how to write. Basically, I taught myself that I could edit myself, and um, and just have more control over what I want. I could play with the language as well, which which I like doing. Um, some of my stuff is more; it's kind of musical if you read it out loud. At least to me, it is. And um, and working it was kind of my private space. So when I started writing for other platforms, I took a little bit, I replaced a little bit of the personal part with more factual details, like more history of food and stuff. So I could write in two separate, What I could write a little bit differently for publications as I did for myself. So I basically wrote for myself. And then I on my new blog, you'll see that I did insert some completely non-food, uh, more observational, because we lived in Nantes for a while. And yeah, those were old blog posts I transferred to the new blog um, where I was writing about, I would take pictures a lot with my phone. And so I would do series uh, of on my blog of photos of chairs, And then I would write thoughts about that, or I did photos of graffiti and write thoughts about that. So it was, I think my blog became a place for me to experiment with my writing, even though it was usually around food. And then I just added recipes.
0: Now, can you tell our uh, listeners about your hotel and how long you've had it?
1: Yes, we bought, we moved in January, 2015 and it's a 27-room hotel with staff of yeah we have a staff of five and it's um in a beautiful 15th century building which used was originally built as a home for a canon of the church because um Chinon was was for since I think since the year 100 was a a thriving religious community. And later, a few centuries later, it became a royal city as well because we have the royal fortress where French kings lived and English kings lived. It's a a fascinating town for being a a very small town. Um, And that's really it. I, you- I, oh, I also do. I also make all the jams. When we bought the hotel, oh, nice. I had to agree. We're the fourth owners of the hotel. And each of the former owners made all the jams, starting with Madame Linnell, the first owner in the 60s. They always made the jams that were served at breakfasts here. And when we wanted to sign to buy the hotel, they said, you have to carry on the tradition. And I said, okay. So I learned how to make jam. And I make, I don't know, a thousand jars of jam a year for the hotel.
0: That's quite a bit. <laughs>
1: it's a lot. It's a lot. But yeah. that's when I listen to podcasts. Yeah. When I I'm can imagine. Jam.
0: It must be really exciting to run a hotel. I mean, you must meet all kinds of people. It must be kind of thrilling, I imagine.
1: It's, it runs the whole gamut of emotions, really. <laughs> because it's an incredible amount of work it's exhausting Um, luckily I love our team um, our staff we're like a family it's been it's it's great working together um but it's it's been fascinating on a lot of levels yeah I've met a lot of people some of our clients I've actually we've actually become friends with and I keep in touch with you know we have a lot of returning clients as well and um I've, yeah, I've seen some amazing stories happen here. Um, I've met some fascinating people. Uh, we've had some famous people here. And, um, and I've also learned, you know, you observe, because I serve breakfast every single morning. And you start to see a lot of cultural differences between people, you know, the Spaniards are like this, the Italians are like this, the Americans are like this, the British are like this. And it's, I kind of find that fascinating. Because it's, you know, it's true. I mean, even when it comes to just what they, you know, how they behave at the breakfast table, it's, it's very cultural.
0: Yeah, I've, I've, I've noticed when I've been abroad, I've uh, noticed that too. And I've also, you know, had different friends, there were different cultures. And it's funny, the American take on breakfast versus other people's. It's very kind of fascinating to see the diversity there.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, since you've been food writing, has this changed your cooking at all? Has it informed your cooking or and vice versa, has your cooking that you've been doing informed your food writing? Has has this evolved for you?
1: I'm, I'm sure it has. I, hmm, that's that's a complicated question. Um, I. I think I I think when you know that you might be, be either posting something on your blog or you're doing a recipe if I'm doing a recipe that I might want to because it's something very traditional from a certain area for example um, and I might want to pitch it to a magazine um, I pay much more attention to how I'm doing it Um, because you want to get it right you want to get it perfect yeah Um, but I mean, my cooking, my, my cooking itself evolved after spending those four years as an interpreter in a cooking school because I learned, I learned, you know, the gestures and the and how to chop something and how to whip something and how to, um, you know, all those little, those little things, those little gestures, and um, and I learned to from the very beginning to pay attention to it. Yeah. And um but hmm. I mean I think I try certain recipes because I'm interested in learning about that particular recipe because I hope maybe to write about it. Right. Yeah.
0: Um I want to ask you about Food Blogger Connect. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Food Blogger Connect was this was back in what 2010 or 11. There were a bunch of us who lived in, around Europe, in Italy, in Great Britain, in France, in Germany, who had gotten to be friends through food blogging community. And you know we were going to food blogging conferences in, uh, in the States. It was really the only place that, there were no food blogging conferences in Europe at that time. And we were so tired of you know, spending a ton of money on an airplane ticket and flying to the States and just to go to conferences that we decided to create our own. And so there were about, I can't remember, about six of us, I guess, who got together and who created uh, Food Blogger Connected London, which was the first English language food blogging conference in Europe. And um, we actually had Americans who came and Canadians who came, which was, we had people from all over the world, actually, who came. And um, after doing that for two or three years, a couple of us, there were two writers and two photographers, we decided that there were so many, we're starting to meet people who had done the round of food conferences. They'd gone to all the food conferences in the United States two times, three times. They've come to ours twice. And we realized that people were looking for the next step, which would be an actual hands-on workshop. And so four of us got together and created what was probably the first hands-on food writing, food photography workshop ever. And we did that in Europe, obviously, um, and that circulated around the four countries because one one lived in Germany, one lived in England, one lived I lived in France, and one lived in Italy. So we kind of circulated them. Oh, we did one in we did one in uh, Ireland, yeah. And um,
0: oh, that must have been amazing.
1: Yeah, and uh, and they were really really great. We did them with 12, 12 people max and just did intense, you know, an intensive three or four day workshop where they did photography and writing separately, but then together, how do you, how when you're working on, for example, a magazine article with a photographer and you're the writer or vice versa, how do you mesh those together? How do you use them to complement each other? How do they work together? So it was um, great. And I started doing them here at the hotel with, either only one photographer or one fellow food writer. I like doing it with another food writer too, just the two of us doing it because you get two completely different uh, points of view um, and experiences with, uh, with the same craft, which is food writing.
0: Um, and I wanna ask you also similarly about your page plate to page workshops. Uh, what were those
1: that was the the workshop that 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 we came out of yeah that we that came out of food blogger connect yeah we created plate to page workshop yeah
0: so you wrote also for the huffington post how did that come Mm -hmm. about that must have been very exciting
1: that was in 2010 and i had been food blogging for two years a little less and that was when ariana huffington still owned and ran huffington post and someone contacted me and said, I love your writing. I love your food blog. Um, Huffington Post is creating a food page. Would you be interested in being a contributor? And I said, yes. You don't say no to that. Um, no. Especially, especially me who had only had no other professional writing experience. And so it was fantastic because I could write whatever I wanted. and I had, at that point, I had, there was an editor of the page and he would, I could, you know, he really worked with us. He didn't really edit our stuff, but he would help us. He would help us promote it. He would help us um, place it and stuff. So, um, I... That's that's the same thing. I mean, it was 2010 and I go back and I look at my writing and I realized that if I wrote the same piece now, I would completely, you know, I'm a much better writer now than I was back then. But what was great about it was that it gave me a lot of freedom because I could post what I wanted, when I wanted. And that's when I really started writing about topics that I did not write about on my own blog because they weren't personal enough. Um, I could write pieces that were less personal and more, I guess, journalistic, if you want to call it that. Um, So I liked, I loved the experience. And I did that for two years until I think, I think at some point she must've sold, sold Huffington post. They completely changed everything and no longer, there was no longer specific editor. He disappeared. And it was impossible. It was just became less fun, less agreeable experience. Yeah. And, um, and then it just kind of faded out over time. I tried to add like once every year, I would add a list of like cookbook recommendations for the holidays, for holiday gifts, which I like doing. Um, and that was it, but it was a great experience. Yeah.
0: I, um, Imagine you've seen, because you've been writing since, would it be fair to say you've been writing since like 2008 professionally? You've seen like a lot, of, I mean, with the Huff Post thing coming and going, and just since 2008, I feel like there's been a lot of differences in food writing. There's been a huge kind of a revolution. Do you think right now we're kind of hitting like a renaissance period where all kinds of people are doing it, everybody's really enjoying it? Even television is caught on, and they're getting food writers to have TV shows and stuff. We're hitting. You think we're hitting like a renaissance right now?
1: Oh gosh, you know, since COVID, the last couple of years, I've kind of been out of it and not really been involved at all or followed what was going on. I think. Hmm. How do I get myself in trouble? Yeah. No, that's a tricky (laughs) question. Because I think. Well, because I know that that food blogging, there was a big a big change in food blogging when people started to realize they could make a lot of money with food blogging, and it became uh, professional. Right. So instead of people like me and all those people that I had originally were were food blogging, doing it to be creative, doing it to be fun. Um, that whole it kind of for me it tilted it out of balance when people started to become food bloggers because they realized that it was they could become professional at it um food writing was sort of the same where there are a lot of great people a lot of really talented people doing a lot of great food writing um i I think the different i don't know it's I yeah i don't want (laughs) to I don't know if I need to share my opinion. Um, but I, I do I have been trying to um, to get back into it. I I've, I've started recently a collaboration with a food magazine in the States, and I don't want to say anything who it is because um, my first pieces are coming out next year. Um, and I'm finding I'm starting to refine my passion for research and and developing recipes. Uh, for, for publication. And so I'm going to start to, now it's time for me to come out of my COVID, you know, the, the, the COVID isolation and start to see what, who's doing what again.
0: Now, um, in California, we're coming upon orange season here. And I'm mm-hmm. really excited by that because I, I love the variety and bounty of oranges we have here. And that speaks to your cookbook, Orange Appeal, Savory and <laughs> Sweet. So how did you come to write this and what was your inspiration to write this cookbook?
1: I actually signed with my agent in uh, Martha Hopkins in um, in when I after I purchased the hotel because I want to write a and I've started to write a memoir about owning this hotel and running the hotel. And so I knew I needed, an agent and she wanted me so we signed even though it was still far off on the horizon because I don't want to write the book until after we sell, eventually sell the hotel and so we just decided to try and throw out an idea in order to get my name on the on bookshelves and to tell you the truth I can't remember how I, I think I came on oranges because because when I started to look for a topic, I didn't want to do French cuisine because there were so many people doing it for for better, for worse, because there are a lot of people who shouldn't be writing about French cuisine who are, um, but there are a lot of good cookbooks by Americans on French cooking. But I didn't see myself trying to work my way into that crowd of authors. And at that time, citrus was getting to be really trendy. And in looking at all the books that were coming out on citrus, I realized that nobody had done a book specifically about oranges. And I think oranges are incredibly versatile. And in my opinion, the most versatile of the citrus fruits. And so I started to explore it and I thought it was... I thought it would be fun and yes i grew up in florida i grew up this, <laughs> i grew up on the space coast of florida which is indian river indian river citrus which is world famous i even buy indian river citrus in europe oh wow and um and i mean i grew up with with citrus i i you know we ate it all winter it was a winter fruit and i mean we'd go directly to the groves and either pick them when we could or just buy them at the groves and although I never cooked or baked with them I just ate them I grew up eating citrus and so I put together a proposal and I had you know some publishers interested in publishing it and I decided to go with Gibbs Smith and voila and what was great about this book was that though I had never baked with orange except for you know putting zest in things I had a lot of fun developing the recipes but the savory part the savory recipes just kind of blew my mind I worked with um, about 15 recipe developers who followed me through the whole project because there were a lot of people who volunteered to work with me to test recipes and we were really just blown away by the orange using orange in savory recipes and I think those are just the the recipes that people love the most because they're the, they're the most surprising.
0: I One thing I really like about the cookbook the most is that you don't just have orange recipes. You show us how to cook with orange, which I think is such a big distinction because a lot of us, I think we look at cookbooks, it's like just a handful of like baking recipes usually. And people don't always think of meat, but I really love the applications where you use it with beef, you use it with mm-hmm. pork, chicken, uh, fowl. I think that like it's ingenious to see somebody kind of holding our hand through this and saying, look, cause I mean, just the things like the orange sugar and the orange salt, I know I'm doing that like forever now because <laughs> it's freaking brilliant. Why I didn't think of it before. I don't know. I've always had oranges. I've always had salt. I never thought of making it myself. And it's just a oh. genius idea that I think anybody who gets this book is going to be like, that's going to change, be a game changer for them. Cause the thought of like making a pork shoulder with like, a mixture of the orange salt and the orange sugar kind of curing it before cooking, I think is just going to be amazing. And just pairing it with all these things. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting, I think my family is going to be like, why are we having so many oranges suddenly? I'm like, <laughs> just go with this. You'll see.
1: <laughs> well, the thing that surprised me the most was um, I, I really wanted to develop a, a couple of vegetarian recipes. And so I developed this quiche uh, that has I mean, I just threw so many things in there. I made this savory sweet quiche and I used orange in the crust. I used it in the batter and which is an egg batter. And, um, and then I added orange chunks with, I think I put dates and hazelnuts in it, but I also put spinach and um, feta for This This sounds brilliant. All that sounds and, brilliant. And zucchini. <sighs> and it was, I mean, I served it and, it was just it was incredible and the focaccia too a focaccia where again I put orange in the focaccia dough Um, there's probably zest and juice and then on the top I put onion green olives and orange orange slices and I think those are just two of my favorite recipes just because they're just I mean I just started to everything I cooked I just started to add orange juice, orange zest. And my my staff who tested the recipes boldly, they were very courageous because they think I'm crazy anyway. Um, then my husband and my son, who was here for a while, would start to get, you know, Are there, is there orange in this? Are you sure you put enough orange in this? Are you sure? Are you Are feeding us more orange? But they all loved everything. So I was very pleased.
0: Yeah, I can't see anybody turning this down. I think, you know, <laughs> Who's not going to love this? This is all good stuff.
1: It was tell- fun to do. Yeah. It was a lot of fun to do. it so, it's fun to explore something like that saying, okay, you have one, one, um, one ingredient. Now you have to do 70 recipes using it. So it's, it just ends up being a lot of fun.
0: The um, production value and the food photography were gorgeous in this. Did you yeah. have any hand in like directing that or did the publisher kind of ham hand it with you?
1: Well, My photographer is Ilva Beretta. Ilva and I have worked together. We do, we've done, we did actually um, plate to page workshops. That's where we got to know each other. She was one of the photographers. Then we broke off and we did, we created a blog called Plated Stories Together. And we did it for two years and we won an IACP award for it. Um, I did the writing, she did the photography. And she's done the photography for me for a couple of pieces that I've written that were published for publication. So we've worked together a lot. So when I got this deal, um, I told my agent to see if she could get Ilva on as the photographer. And so she did. And, um, And so Ilva, I had just complete faith in her styling and photography skills. And basically... We did not work together. I sent her recipes. she chose she had you know a, num- a certain number she had to do for the book under contract, and she chose which recipes to, to shoot. She made them and she styled them and shot them. So it worked. And then the, um, the layout of the book which is fantastic is somebody who works freelance, I guess, but works for does a lot of Good Smith books. yeah. It, yeah. they did a really great job yeah
0: it's it's a beautiful book now tell yeah. us about your newest cookbook isolation baking now i can guess the title but tell us a little bit about
1: it <laughs> well um when last march when we learned in, we in france learned that we were going into complete confinement isolation lockdown um the I know that there were other places like New York. There were a lot of places in the States that were already in lockdown and confinement. A lot of other countries in Europe were going in at the same time. And schools were closing. So people were isolated at home with their kids and were hoarding. <laughs> going to the supermarket and hoarding.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Flour, yeast, things, you know, things so they could cook and bake. And I figured, okay, people are either going to need to learn how to cook and bake, or they're going to need inspiration for new recipes because they're going to be at home for who knows how long. And they're also going to want stuff to do with their kids and baking is a great thing to do with kids. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to start posting recipes on Twitter. And so I did a first recipe thread and then the following day i put a second recipe thread up and i said i hashtagged it isolation baking and i said if you do the recipe please sh- take a photo of it and share it with me on twitter and i was <laughs> i was shocked at how many people did and 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 People I didn't even expect, people who, you know, like famous people who don't even follow me on Twitter were like sending me DMs saying, I made your recipe, it's fantastic.
0: Oh my God, and that's people, amazing.
1: And then I started to post more. And what was the big I mean, not only were people sharing photos of them and doing the recipes, but they were getting to know each other because they would comment on each other's photos and then people started to thank me for distracting them between politics and covid i mean twitter was just you know like the apocalyptic dystopian whatever people were coming on and you know doom scrolling so they were so happy that there was this recipe coming up and they could do something and do it with other people because everybody was doing it oh i like to think everybody was doing it And I started posting one to two recipes every day in that first three months that we were in confinement. And after a couple of months, people started saying, oh, I'm having trouble. I can't quite, I can't, I'm not having an easy time following a Twitter thread or other people were saying, how do I go back and find recipes that you've already posted? And so people started asking me if I would put them together in one place where they could access them all easily and so I figured well I'll reactivate life's a feast my blog which I hadn't posted for a while and I tell you I went back to post a recipe on life's a feast and it had been so long since I had posted anything on my blog the whole platform had been updated and changed and I had no idea how to post anything anymore I mean I did but it was just so time consuming and difficult I thought this is never going to work. And my husband who spent 15 20 years in publishing and has been asking me for years to work together so he could publish an ebook. Um, he I told him what the problem was and he said let's do an ebook. And so we found a platform and he helped me with uh, you know all the technical side of it and all the layout side and um and so I just started posting recipes and uh put collecting them into this into this um ebook and at that time we had you know several months had passed and we we were still in you know we had no income at the hotel at all zero right and um we had a feeling that this might go on for a long time. Yeah. And we were trying to brainstorm ways to bring in a little income. So we thought, well, we'll sell the ebook for, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks. But it became really, really complicated um, because of the whole Fran- this is in France, but I'm in America and kind right. of thing. So we decided to just give it away for free. And I did ask people if they wanted to donate to the hotel I opened up a PayPal account they could donate. um, And people actually did, um, very generously, and that went into helping save our hotel the first few months because there was no, at that time there was no solidarity aid or anything coming in. Right. And so, I just um, kept the the ebook out there and Every now and then I reshared on the link on Twitter. It's on Apple Books. And for people who don't have an Apple product like Mac or iPad or iPhone, I created a Google Doc with the PDF. And it has, I think, 90 recipes. I think I ended up on Twitter posting about 150 recipes. And 90 of them are in the book.
0: Yeah, I've seen you on Twitter. I think that's where some of the first places... I became familiar and then I ordered your books and stuff your book and so I I've, you really do great on social media and I've seen such loving responses to your posts about the books. It, it was really kind yeah. of really inspiring to see Now tell me about some, who are some of your food heroes or some of the food writers that you really enjoy reading their work?
1: Oh food writers I should have should have looked at that I have a whole bookshelf of food memoirs and food writers i tell you two of my heroes are um anna thomas and uh who wrote vegetarian epicure one and two plus a few others and um molly Katzen, who wrote the moosewood cookbooks who i've since i've gotten to be very good friends with her too
0: she's amazing um,
1: yeah but these two women you know their cookbooks came out when i was maybe a little bit before um, when I was in college. I discovered them in college. And I know that neither of them were professional food writers or cookbook authors. They, they were, I think Molly was an artist and um, Anna Thomas is a filmmaker. And they started, they wrote these cookbooks to raise money for their creative passions, their creative work. Um, but they cre- to me, they created a revolution. I mean, they, they, they did something to vegetarian cooking that made it, um, you know, f- fabulous. I mean, because before that, vegetarian, and I've been going through my vegetarian stage in college and stuff. And it was all that, you know, a lot of dried beans and, you know, nut balls and things like that. And all of a sudden here they were doing this this fantastic, fantastic, creating fantastic food that was vegetarian. And it really created a whole whole revolution and um, turned so many people on to, to, to vegetarian cooking. And I just think that's what they did was just amazing. And as, and as women, as a young woman, I saw this happening too. So I mean, they're just, they just became heroes of mine.
0: I, I think we can't underscore enough Molly's contribution contribution to um, cooking and, and food writing. I mean, I worked in a bookstore bookstore for several years and Molly's books would just fly off the shelf. I mean, she oh. was such such a big seller and people were so happy to get her books because she was like a lifeboat for people that were cooking largely vegetarian food Uh who actually wanted to cook something good. And I think she changed the face of food writing quite a bit. I mean, she's just amazing.
1: Yeah. 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 And vegetarian Epicure one and Epicure two were my first two cookbooks. The two two cookbooks I owned They were both gifts. One was a gift from my brother and one was a gift, a going away gift when I transferred schools uh, from an old um, college roommate and I still use them. They're falling apart. The spines are all broken. The pages are falling out, but I, they're my, those two are my most used cookbooks and I'm still using them.
0: Yeah. we say there's cookbooks you keep in your kitchen and cookbooks you keep in your uh, library. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And hers are
0: definitely ones you keep in your kitchen.
1: Yep. Now, if you could,
0: if there was no quarantine currently, and you can go anywhere in the world and eat, what restaurant would you go to, or restaurants, if you want to mention a few? You
1: know, I was thinking about this, and I'm not sure that restaurants, I would go to a particular restaurant. There are cities that I would love to go and discover. My son, my younger son lived in Munich for a few years and and kept inviting me to come visit him and I never did and that and then and now I regret it since he doesn't live in Munich anymore but he would just tell me about the restaurants and I and weirdly enough I, I would see shows on um on French TV about the food scene in Munich and I would love to go there and 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 discover it and and, and eat there uh, and of course nice. places like I'd like to go back to Rome and eat
0: oh oh my god yeah
1: yeah. And um, I loved eating in Italy. Gosh. Yeah. As yeah, far as restaurants, yeah. I don't know. There's a few restaurants. I mean, I'd like to go back to um, there's a restaurant in Nantes called Loulou Rouge, Rouge, um, that I wrote about actually a young chef. He opened up when we lived there. And two years ago, he got his first Michelin star and I'm meaning to go back and eat there. That's a goal.
0: Mm, that sounds yeah. wonderful. Now, do you have any advice that you could give to people that are starting out in food writing?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> I just, no, I say no, because it's like I said, I've been out of it for a couple of years and I feel like two years is, is, so, is, is centuries. Um, I, I mean, I think the best advice is to read. It's always the best advice is to read. And to read not just one author or not just one magazine, but to read everything, everything that you possibly can. And this is what I tell people in my writing workshops, my food writing workshops, is to read a lot of food memoirs, but also um, uh, you know, a lot of books, just a lot of different authors and contemporary uh, stuff from the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, a lot of different stuff until you understand what it is you wanna write about and what your angle is and what really is passionate to you. Um, I mean, for example, I kind of stand out. I didn't have a ton of stuff published, but people knew who I was because I had a very particular angle, which was, I wrote you know, as an American about French cooking French cuisine, but I did a lot of the the history behind particular dishes and foods. Um, I wrote about the home culture of cooking and eating uh, as well, because I, you know, I've spent so many years, you know, embedded in, in French people's homes and in a French family, uh, understanding the rituals and, and how people cook and how people eat. And so I mean, I think that's the best thing to do is to read as much as you can and just try and understand, not only work on your writing skills, but try and understand what it is you have to say that's unique.
0: Yeah,
1: and like then and get to know people, connect with people. Yeah. That's the best thing too. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. Now, as yeah. the last question, um, the holidays are coming up and we have, you know, of course, American Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, all kinds of holidays are coming up. Uh, are you cooking anything for the, looking forward to cooking anything for the holidays?
1: I am, I've been working on trying to get both of my sons and my one son with his family here all at the same time. So if they come, then we will cook. Um, now, we we have certain traditions um, because I love to bake that... We don't celebrate Christmas, we don't celebrate a lot of those holidays, but every year I make a bouche de Noël, every year in for oh. Epiphany I make a galette des rois. Um, so there's food traditions that I make every year because we love the food tradition and not necessarily because we celebrate the holiday. So I will probably, but I am um, working on a collection of French traditional Christmas recipes for a magazine piece. So I am still testing the recipes. So the next month, there will be a lot of that happening in my kitchen. Even if there's no meal to go with it, we'll just be eating a lot of French pastry, holiday pastries.
0: Doesn't sound so bad.
1: (laughs) Cake cake for dinner, cake for dinner. Believe me, it won't be the first time my family's come home and found cake for dinner.
0: I don't think anybody's going to complain. <laughs> no. Jamie, it's been wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate getting to have you on the show. And I really, I want to recommend anybody to uh, get, check out your cookbook, Orange Appeal. And now that Orange Season's coming up, it's a wonderful cookbook. Also, iso- um, Isolation Baking. Um, definitely want to recommend that to people. And also the coming up, Stir Crazy. I want to have everybody come and listen to your podcast. I can't wait to listen to it myself. I'll be a regular listener, so. I look okay. forward to that. Great. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is great. This is
0: That was my interview with author and now podcaster Jamie Schler. I encourage you to follow her bio that I posted here and look up her website, her uh, free cookbook, her blog, and also her podcast. All the information is on the bio on any of the platforms that this podcast is on. Coming up on Friday, we have Mario Lopez-Goyoko uh, He is a friend of mine and somebody I really enjoy getting a chance to talk to uh, face-to-face. He and I have been contacting each other about writing for, for months now, and I really feel like I've known him for a long time. Wonderful man. really enjoyed a good chance to get to talk to him. Uh, he's a great friend, and I hope you all get, get a chance to stop in on Friday and listen to his interview then. Until then, hope you all have a great week and happy cooking.